that's like well you can't you know you can't have long dirt races without a a, a big long well then go race. fucking that, watch dirt races go watch exactly. world of outlaws yes. that's literally what it's for We are officially nine races into the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series season, a quarter of the way through. Kyle Busch steals the win at Bristol Dirt with Tyler Reddick and Chase Briscoe getting together on the final lap. There's been some controversy about this race, Nick. I personally did not watch it. I did not even know the starting lineup before I randomly put in some lineups in DraftKings before, like an hour before the race. And did not watch it. Did like that's how much I know about this race. So I'm going to be relying on you for a lot of this for this controversy because I know a lot of people are either on one side or the other and either love it or hate it. There's no in between. The fact of the matter is, though, this race had major ratings. Uh, I think it did what four million viewers on Sunday night. Now, obviously. I think those numbers were inflated a little bit due to it being a holiday weekend, it being at night on a Sunday night, and there not being nothing else on. But the fact of the matter is, we don't we haven't seen these type of numbers out of Bristol in a long time. So let's start there. Is it a is this still a gimmick? And that's why these ratings are high. Or do you think that the general NASCAR crowd, general fan base, is super actually super interested in dirt? And I know you're not impressed with this race. I obviously have no I, I don't I hate this race every year, but you know what? It's here to stay, I think. If, if it keeps doing numbers like that, it's here to stay. So what's your overall takeaway with between the race itself and the ratings? Yeah, I mean Clearly with the ratings, it's here to stay. Uh, the highest Bristol spring race uh, since 2016. That says a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think it's the third highest race after Daytona 500 and then Auto Club and Las Vegas, I saw in a thread. So, you know, the, the viewership trails off. But the fact that it was higher than the next five races after that says a lot. Uh it, it's definitely here to stay. There were still problems. The racing wasn't my favorite. Uh, I, I I thought there were a lot of problems. I can go through all of them. but And we can talk about that. But it is here to stay. We're going to have another Bristol night race. That's already determined. Is it going to be the Easter weekend race? I don't think that's been determined yet, but I think all indications are it will be. So it's here to stay. What I would like to see, if it's here to stay is improvements made to the rules because the racing was better. I still wasn't a fan, but the racing clearly was better. The numbers show it. Uh, I, I was tweeted out a stat that there was a over a 200% increase in passes per car per lap. It went from like 0.14 something to 0.447 or something like that. So almost... Every other lap, each car was making a pass. That's pretty good. The biggest issue 
the biggest issue is you couldn't pass for the lead. There was zero passes for the lead under what I would consider normal racing conditions. So restarts, there was, you know, I mean, Chase Briscoe took the lead on the initial start of the race. Uh, I, you know, I think Tyler Reddick took the lead on, on the stage three restart. So there were restart lead changes. And the only other two lead changes were when Chase Briscoe was being chased down by Kyle Larson. Larson couldn't get past him for a little bit. And then Chase Briscoe had a tire issue and, and Larson got by. That's not normal. Like if, if Chase Briscoe didn't have the tire issue, I don't know if Kyle Larson would have passed him. Kyle Larson was definitely faster uh, and it was hard to pass. The only other pass for the lead was Kyle Busch winning the race on the last set of turns. Uh, so, um, and that wasn't, you know, normal race. He didn't make a, a quality pass by dive bombing somebody. And, and you know, he just saw, he got to the front because two people wiped out in front of him. So there were no normal racing conditions. Yeah. And he still, still almost didn't get the win. That's how yeah. far back he was from those two. Yep. Yep. But Daniel Suarez held off the field for a whole stage. Basically, most of the whole stage, mm-hmm. too. Chase Briscoe eventually got the lead back again. It was a Briscoe or Reddick. One of those two eventually got the lead back again. He was Briscoe uh, on a restart late in the stage. But Daniel Suarez wasn't that good. He just had the track position and he was able to just run the high line that everybody needed to run and he could just hold off faster cars the whole stage. Doesn't matter if it was Briscoe attacking him or Reddick or Larson or uh, you know, he had a couple Chastain was behind him at one point on various restarts. All he had to do was get a good restart and then he could just hold people off. And the one restart that he didn't have that was good, he lost the lead. So that was still an issue. And then there were the issues with the rules, the race and there are a plethora of them, which kind of ruined the experience for me. Let's go right into those. What what were they? Yeah, I mean, the right off the bat, we see three cars have overheating issues from mud on the front of their car, blocking the air, getting in, uh, and being able to cool down. I don't know if it was the radiator engine or whatever, but they were overheating. Because of the mud caked all over the front of their car. All three of them, to be fair, were Stuart Haas racing cars. So maybe they were doing something different than everybody else, which caused the mud to be more of an issue for them. But that was right off the bat. And Cole Custer and Eric Almirola pitted with these heating overheating issues. And then NASCAR threw a caution so everybody could clean their car off. And Eric Almirola and Cole Custer don't get their laps back. Uh, It's just like... So they threw a caution because the cars that had mud on their grill pitted and cleaned them off. And then everybody else that was fine was fine. And so they threw a caution. And then those guys didn't get their lap back, which, I mean, to be fair, there's no rule that's like you need to get your lap back. But it's just, it was a mess right off the bat. And then we had two or three cars at least lose an engine because of dust and dirt getting in there. Uh we obviously had the rain debacle, which we'll talk about, you know, was Chase Briscoe leading? Was Kyle Busch leading? How can you live bet a race when you have no idea who the leader is and NASCAR has it wrong and Fox has it wrong and Bob Pockers has it wrong? How can you live bet a race like that? So uh, just one of those weird circumstances where only NASCAR could come up with these rules that have such a low probability of like shit hitting the fan and they there's a way that shit still hits the fan. So 
that need, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to get sorted out. Everybody, I guess, should have been aware of the rule. It's in their rule book, and, and it's not really NASCAR's fault. It just wasn't clear to anybody, including everybody who was important. <laughs> so um, that was kind of a, a big old mess there. And yeah, it was, it just kind of ruined the experience. I've, you know, I've heard a few quotes from drivers this week, basically saying, if NASCAR wants to continue doing this, they need to do it right. And, and one of those was from Kyle Larson. He was very critical about them not removing windshields. You know, make this an actual dirt race. Get rid of the windshields. Kevin Harvick hates the idea of Bristol dirt. Um, so here's a question for you. And I'm on board for this. I think this would definitely hurt viewership. So NASCAR is not going to be on board for it. But why make this a points paying race? Why not just make this an all-star race or make it the all-star race? Because we all know how awful Texas was last year as the all-star race. I don't think this is any, this would be like having Bristol dirt as a playoff race. And I'm not even sure that the people that are very staunch defenders of this Bristol dirt race can sit, can sit there and confidently say that this should be a playoff race. Now I'm not saying it should be or it, or it ever will be, but if you can't defend this race to, for being a playoff race, how can you defend it as a race that determines someone that can lock themselves into the playoffs? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think, you know, you bring it up as an all-star race. And I think that's a fantastic idea. I would love to see the days where, and I don't think it can happen. I don't, I don't particularly know. I'm not obviously uh, in the logistics of getting dirt onto a track, but what if we did like Charlotte, where it was the all-star race the first weekend and then the weekend after. So a full week to get the dirt off the track and get the cars back on the track. Now I don't think that would work, but what if you took a week off in between, you had two weeks to do it and you just, everybody stayed at Bristol or I mean, obviously I could go home in between, but you had two consecutive Bristol races one being the dirt race and one being the concrete points paying race. There, there's an idea, maybe. Uh, not necessarily super feasible, I guess, because of the whole dirt deal. But I do think having it as an all-star race is a fantastic idea. I, I like that NASCAR is trying things. I'm not a fan of the dirt race, but I like that NASCAR is trying things. Look at the clash. I like that. That's great. I like that they're trying to make the dirt thing work. I honestly would be a fan of the dirt racing thing if it works. It just hasn't worked for mm -hmm. me yet. Uh, I want to like it. It just hasn't worked for me yet. I'm also not a fan of sh very short races, and a 250-lap Bristol event is 125 miles. If it had gotten rained out after the Stage 2, we would have had a 75-mile race. That just doesn't yeah. feel like a top-level NASCAR series to me. So that's my other qualm with the dirt racing. Uh, I I don't know what the solution is there because all the dirt, and I got a little heat for this on Twitter from the dirt community. That's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't have long dirt races without a, a, a big long break. Well, then go fucking and watch dirt races. Go exactly. watch Yes. That's literally what it's for. Yes, I'm so I'm I'm sick of the the dirt community coming out during this race, like sh and then shutting the fuck up for the rest of the year. Get out of here! This isn't NASCAR Cup Series, isn't World of Outlaws, it isn't anything. It's NASCAR Cup. 
not mm-hmm. supposed to be running on dirt. And I know I sound like a damn boomer right now, but not supposed to be running on dirt. 14 cautions for 82 laps. Average speed of the race was under 35 miles an hour. You and I drive faster a, than that on most roads. That's a joke. I can drive faster than that legally in the middle of my town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 14 cautions in a 125-mile race. If you do that in cautions per mile, that's through the roof. That's one more than one every 10 miles. Imagine if every five laps we had a caution. Every four laps we had a caution at Daytona. Every five at Auto Club. Mm. Right? Like, nobody would watch. I mean, I guess people would if they were wrecking at Daytona and stuff. But, like, yeah. ugh. Ugh. It wasn't enjoyable. I just didn't. I didn't enjoy it. You couldn't get into a rhythm. It was restart after restart until the end. That last stage actually had some green flag, but <sighs> frustrating. And the only passing happened through the pack. And they're, if you're watching on TV, they're not showing in the pack as much because they're showing the battle for the lead because the second place guy can't pass the leader. So they're always close if the second place guy is fast. So that's the battle they're showing, but there's no actual passing. It was it was a struggle for me. And like I said, I didn't watch this race. I watched like the 15-minute highlight video that Fox put up on YouTube. And it seemed like that their cameramen couldn't keep up with the action at all. Like announcers would be like, oh, car's spinning in turn four. And then 20 seconds later, not 20 seconds, but five, 10 seconds later, they're finally getting to It's a half-mile track. Like... I don't see how it's that bad. One, well, let's not get concerning... into the uh, the truck race. Speaking of Fox, the truck race where they threw a ca- or not threw a caution. They went to commercial with 13 laps to go on a half mile track. Did they really? They went to a two and a half minute commercial break. I mean, it was side by side, but you know that little side picture is not that big. With 13 laps to go on a half mile track, a 20 second lap. You have to think at this point that Fox has just thrown in the towel. Their entire broadcast is shit across all series. Mm-hmm. I will say, I thought the NBC... truck race was really good. I thought the truck race, dirt race was good. And it, it got people's... Or... The racing, I thought it was a good race. Okay. And it got people's hopes and expectations up for Cup. And I, I know a lot of you who follow me on Twitter know Greg Mathern. Um, he and I went to high school together. I was telling him after the truck race, don't get your hopes up for Cup. Just because the truck race was good, don't get your hopes up for Cup. Because uh, he was saying, oh, it makes me you know, feel good about the Cup race. Cup race wasn't the same thing. Like I said, we are we are nine races in this year. And we just went through a little short track three-week, if you can call that. Richmond, Martinsville, Bristol, all of them under a mile. There's a little bit of a concerning trend, in my opinion. That's lead changes. Had 13 at Richmond, which is all right, but a lot of it was strategy. Five at Martinsville and six at Bristol Dirt. Obviously, the the shorter amount of laps or the less amount of laps played to that. But you look back at Fontana. We had 32 passes or lead changes at Fontana. We had 23 at Vegas. We had 46 at Atlanta. We had 13 at Circuit of the Americas. I'm really starting to think that this car is going to be awful on short tracks all year. I don't like these numbers and how they're trending. 
And the small sample size we have, I realize it's small, but I just I'm not liking this. I agree. The the interesting one for me is going to be Nashville because it's sort of a intermediate, sort of a shorter flat. You know, mm-hmm. very curious about that one. Uh, it's also on concrete. So, and then we'll have a new track gateway, uh, new to the Cup Series. So, worldwide technology raceway, whatever the hell you want to call it. But it's another right. one mile, a little over one mile flat track. But I, I agree with you. I'm a little concerned about the shorter track product that we've been putting on because you couldn't really pass for the lead at Richmond other than tires, which thank God for tires um, fall off. You couldn't at all pass at Martinsville. Martinsville was so bad. It was terrible. It was the worst race of the year easily. And Bristol, there was a lot of passing through the mid pack as I documented through the data, but it's a little inflated by a couple things. First of all, if you have more restarts, you're going to have more passes, green flag passes, just by nature of everybody's going to bunch back up. And second, not only were there more restarts, there were way more double file restarts. Because remember last year, the last three or four restarts were single file. <laughs> yeah. So it absolutely is still inflated a little bit. So, you know, Jeff, Jeff Gluck's poll, I think it went about 60-40 for a good race, maybe 61% good race, something like that. I was surprised that it's that high. I Even knowing I'm biased against it, I was surprised it was that high. So it does say something about the fan base that it's not necessarily a gimmick at this point. We already had two. They haven't gotten it right both times, and it's here to stay. So they need to get it damn right now. So it's not a gimmick at this point, and fans are embracing it. Ranks ninth out of 10 races so far. Yeah, but still over half. Glux, right, in Gluck's so. poll. It's still over half. Three lowest, and he, he also notes that the three lowest races were the last three weeks. Mm-hmm. So the three short track races, three lowest. Which is funny because the short track racing is what everybody loved the past exactly. couple of years. Yep. Um, going back, you mentioned Nashville. That I am also interested to see that, especially because Kyle Larson just absolutely dominated that race last year, led two sixty four out of three hundred laps. So um, I have to say, we'll be- I, I have to say, remember after Auto Club when Kyle Larson won Auto Club and he didn't look like a driver that should have won Auto Club. It, he was fine. He was a top five to seven car, and then yeah. DraftKings opened him at six to one for Vegas, and everybody jumped on that. Yep. Larson yep. blew the socks off everybody on Bristol Dirt practice and was seven to one, and nobody's talking about it. Dead silence, mm-hmm. crickets, other than me. It's recency bias. I know, and I'm like, back I, in Fontana, we were Kyle so Larson. used to last season. Yeah, yeah, but I was I was saying don't do it. Remember, I was like, I was the one that said yep. don't do it, and now I, jumped, I was like, oh, I jumped over that jump so quick. Over. I was like, please jump all over Kyle Larson this week, and. My opinion, he had the best car. I think he had a better car than Chase Briscoe. He, he chased Chase Briscoe down in stage one and then passed him because Briscoe had the, the issue. But the reason he didn't win the race, potentially, was because when both he and Briscoe pitted after stage two and went to the rear, Briscoe had the better restart lane and was able to make more passes to get to the front. But I honestly believe Kyle Larson had the best car, Briscoe second, and Reddick third. That said... I think we have to address this. I wouldn't have celebrated a 14 to one Tyler Reddick win 
I wouldn't have celebrated. I didn't. So I bet Kyle, uh, Kyle Bush 12 to one live because I had bad information during the caution that he was the leader. And I said, well, if he's the leader and it's raining, how can I not bet him 12 to one live? But that was bad information. So I made a bad bet there and I got lucky. I got bailed out. Well, I guess I got unlucky because I had Reddick at 14 to one, but I just don't feel good about my bets. I, the three head to heads I wrote up at action network. I won all, all three of those uh, for the day of the race, but I, I, and we talked about this. I mean, there was some stuff on Twitter, but my response to your tweet was literally about my own bet and people got mm-hmm. upset thinking we were talking shit about them. When my response was, I feel bad. I'm not going to celebrate Tyler Reddick winning 14 to one. I'm not going to celebrate Kyle Bush. Those were my bets. I was talking about myself. So let's just put it out there. Literally, my first response to that tweet was about my bet and my response to my reaction of my bet winning. Just putting it out there. Yeah, that whole debacle. Um, I don't. I don't respond well when people call me a liar, especially when I have fucking receipts on everything that you say about me. So I don't even remember who this fuckface was. But, um, yeah, that was, that's all I'm going to say about that situation. I have nothing more to say. Uh, I had to to address it because I think there were some misconceptions about out there about we were putting down other betters or telling them they can't celebrate their wins or no, it was more just like, I wouldn't feel great about celebrating a win on that. That's it. That's all, you know, we're, we're done. We're past that now. Yeah, if if I'm putting down other betters, you're gonna know it because I come out swinging when I put down other people. So, yeah. Going back to the best car in the race, Kyle Larson was second in green flag speed behind Austin Dillon, who finished thirty first. So you can't count that. So I agree with you there. It, it's to me, Kyle Larson had the best car. Uh, Kyle Busch was behind him, and then Reddick, and then Bell. So those numbers make sense. Briscoe was down in 11th when it came yeah, to Yeah, I think it makes speed. sense for Briscoe because of the two issues he had, the, the spin on the last mm-hmm. lap and then that tire issue. I, obviously, I think he had the second best car, um, but there were, certainly were some extenuating circumstances that dropped him down to 11th. And when you only have, what, half of the laps being green flag laps or something, it's, uh, you know, it's much harder. To, it's much more costly, I should say, when you have one or two really bad laps because of little things here or there. We got to give a shout out to our boy Todd Gillen, though. Came up with a 17th place finish. Teammate Michael McDowell came home ninth, finished eighth in stage two. Um, you know, looking at this year's standings now, your boy Denny Hamlin with another bad, bad race. Average finish now of 23.1 for James Dennis Allen Hamlin. That is worse than Jacques Villeneuve. I just had to throw that one out there. Cole Custer, Michael McDowell, Bubba Wallace, Justin Haley, Ty Dillon, Eric Jones, Christopher Bell, Kyle Larson, Kurt Busch, Daniel Suarez, Chris Buescher, Brad Kozlowski, Austin Dillon, Austin Cedric, Chase Briscoe, Kevin Harvick, Tyler Riddick, Ross Chastain, Martin Truex Jr., William Byron, Eric Amarola, David Reagan, Joey Logano, Kyle Busch, Alex Bowman, Ryan Blady, Chase Elliott. Denny Hamlin's not having a good season. No. Do you think he can turn it around? Yes. Uh, 
He's a good driver. That this a lot of this isn't his fault. Some of it is. A lot it, of it uh, isn't. It never is. It's never Denny's fault. No, but there, <laughs> there are. I mean, it's a fact that you know. I think it was like the fuel pump broke or something at at Martinsville, and there was a. I don't know what it was at Bristol, but there are a couple times his car is broken, and the Toyotas in general, especially the JGR ones, have had a lot of issues. Not as many as the not not the twenty three XI so much, but the JGR ones have had a lot of issues this year. Uh, and you know, if you look at more predictive stats than the point standings or, aver- or average finish, Denny Hamlin's doing a lot better. It's not amazing, but he's doing a lot better. Uh, so yeah, I think he'll turn it around. Obviously, he's already in the playoffs, uh, barring eight hundred other winners. Um, which I guess is still possible, <laughs> right? We got eight winners in nine races, right? But uh, we could see another one this weekend at Talladega for sure. So, you know, I'm not concerned, but there definitely have been issues with him and with JGR as a whole so far in 2022. Yeah. So, so Hamlin has been running at the finish in only five of the nine races this year, which is the worst of everyone that's made the nine starts. Larson's there at six as well. Austin Dillon, Stenhouse, they're both at six. Uh, it's a little bit surprising. Kyle Busch now is is tied for the lead in top tens this year. Six out of nine. Nice. Nice. They're with Chase Elliott, Ryan Blaney. They're at six. Uh, Kyle Busch is sixth in points. You know, um, and the you know the big thing that people always said when he was running all the truck races, running all the Xfinity races, is that it was taking away from his prowess at in Cup. I do you think that's more of a of a of the new car thing with Kyle Busch? You know, kind of having a better season this year than we've gotten used to over the last couple of years, or is it the you know focusing solely on Cup? It's tough to say. I don't think, you know, running Xfinity or trucks or whatever has hurt him in the past. I think the, I, I do believe the lack of practice hurt him. Um, mm-hmm. I still don't think, you know, I mean, he's sixth in the standings. He's only got two top fives in nine races. I don't think they're running that amazing. This looks like that's, a Kyle Bush of the a, past two, or two years or so. That's the same amount of top fives as Mr. Alex Bowman as well. Mm hmm. And who's fifth, fifth in points? Very similar stat line, but Alex Bowman, Kyle Busch. Dude, look, both win. both have two hundred seventy three points. Both have thirty eight stage points. Uh, <laughs> six to five playoff points. One win each and two top five each. It's crazy. They also have the same average starting position. That's insane. That so, is weird. and they both backed into a win. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Uh, although I, I'm not even so sure, you know, like I said, that that Bowman actually backed into a, a Vegas one. I mean, obviously he won it on a late restart, but he won stage one in that race. He was fast. Mm-hmm. They just were kind yeah. of not as good as Truex or Kyle Busch that race. Yeah. So, you know, before we get to Talladega, which I know we're both chomping at the bit to talk about because... These are the fun weeks. These are the very fun weeks when it comes to not only, you know, this is this is the week to take long shots, but also DFS wise, this is super fun uh, week to make lineups. But uh, you know, like I said, we're nine races in. 
the guys that are top three in points right now have a combined zero wins. Chase Elliott leads the points right now as one top five all year. Do you think there's a clear-cut championship favorite right now? Or is this still all wide open? I think it's pretty clearly wide open. I mean, who has been consistently awesome this year? Chase Elliott has been consistently fine, but he hasn't been that fast outside of Martinsville, and then he faded at the end and then had the bad pit strategy. Ryan Blaney's been... You can't say that... Ryan Blaney's been better. He's been like the, the, the guy to win... It's not like Chase is losing races. He wasn't going to win Martinsville, even even yeah. if he wouldn't have done that stupid pit right. strategy. And the fastest that, car this year has been Blaney. Yeah, Byron's been faster Byron, than his teammate. Mm-hmm. And Chase Elliott's best finish was fourth at Circuit of the Americas, which probably would have been a fifth without Almendinger getting dumped. Yep. And and Chase Elliott didn't have maybe even a fifth-place car at Coda. Maybe it was like a sixth-place car. He was good at the end. He was definitely uh, up there. But, you know, I mean, at best he had a fifth-place car. Uh, Reddick, Briscoe, Dinger, and uh, Bowman, and Chastain were all better than him, I think. So he probably had a sixth-place car. Which is, is very telling because, you know, it used to be you just pencil Chase Elliott in for the for the road course win. And now... When's the last time Chase Elliott won? Yeah, I actually was looking at that earlier this week. Uh, we're getting up on a full year. This is his longest since uh, up until his first win. So, right, his first win came in his third year full-time in Cup. After that point, though, this is now his longest winless drought of his career. He won last at Road America last year. And he only won twice last year, Road America and Circuit of the Americas. Well, he didn't look so, good as and, – and, he didn't look as good at Circuit of the Americas this year. So, yeah. Question concerning. number two, when's the last time Chase Elliott won on a non-road course? And it would have been his Phoenix championship win. Mm-hmm. Which came in 2020. Which, yes. That is – and I don't know whether that's, you know, Chase Elliott in 2020 at Hendrick Motorsports, he was the best there. Now Byron has a couple more years under his belt or another year under his belt. Uh, Bowman's emerged as I, I will say Alex Bowman emerging as a top driver in this series is one of the most surprising things I can remember in the last 10, 15 years. I did not think that he deserved that ride when he got it and he's proving me wrong. Even if he is backing into these wins, he still, he still shows speed. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he still puts up those numbers. He was um, great at circuit of the Americas. He obviously didn't have a winning car, but he was a second or third, fourth place car at worst. I he think right now you could make an argue. I think right now you can make an argument that Chase Elliott's the fourth best Hendrick driver right now. Which is funny because he's leading the point standings. But right? I agree. Like, but I agree. Yeah, he's leading the leading the point standings because he hasn't he had as many doesn't problems. Get in, doesn't yeah. have problems. Doesn't get into wrecks and um, is I, I'd say is consistent. But. I, I honestly, right now, I do think that Chase Elliott is is the fourth out of the four Hendrick drivers, which is amazing to think about. Like it, Hendrick is set for so many years. It's crazy. It's yeah, they're absolutely set. I mean, all four of their drivers are young enough too. It's you know, Kyle Larson's what thirty one or something or twenty eight. I don't even know twenty eight maybe. Um, I don't have it in front of me. But let's look. Let's look at a couple of predictive stats here. So first. 
uh, average running position of the Hendrick cars, Chase Elliott's been the best. Larson, or sorry, Byron second, Larson third, Bowman fourth. But then if we go to average green flag speed over the whole year, the season to date, I'm waiting for it to load. Uh, we have Larson one, Byron two, Elliott three, Bowman four. And they're all really close together. So you're right. There, There is an argument that Elliott's been the worst. It's probably still Bowman, but the gap is really small between them all. And Bowman looked great this year. Like, he's sitting there fifth in the point standings. He's got tied for the second most playoff points of anybody. He and Kyle Busch are almost exactly the same driver this this year. If you think Kyle Busch is good, you got to think Bowman's good, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm pulling it up real quick. Um, fastest laps for the year. I think Bowman's up there, but I want to make sure. Uh Bowman is 10th in fastest laps this year total. So Byron is number one, Blaney second, Chase Elliott actually third. I think Martinsville had a lot to add to that. Chase Briscoe fourth. Um, and these are, yeah, I'm just looking at overall. Um, Chase Briscoe being fourth, a lot of that has to do with Bristol Dirt. He had the most fastest laps there. Uh, Chastain fifth, Reddick sixth, Larson seventh, Truex eighth. Kyle Busch and Bowman rounding out the top 10. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say about Bristol Dirt. I'm, are you, you have anything more to add, or are we going to go on to Talladega? I don't really have anything more to add. I think, you know, I was probably, probably a little too harsh on it, just because I thought, you know, there were a lot of really dumb bullshit situations, and there were, there were a lot of dumb bullshit situations in that race, but the racing itself in the pack was better. Uh, more restarts, notwithstanding, and double file restarts, it still was better. I, mm. I, I, You definitely could run multiple grooves even if you couldn't pass for the lead. And my biggest issue, you know I've, I've talked about this so many times in our year and a half of doing this podcast. I hate when you can't pass for the lead. I hate it. I despise mm. it. If you can't pass for the lead and you're working on the guy for 15, 20 laps, and you still can't pass, that's a problem. If especially, I mean, like I said, if you're faster. And, yeah, and... and I That think was what this car was supposed to eliminate. Sorry, this car was supposed to eliminate that issue. <laughs> and I, it, I, it did, obviously, for the, the longer tracks, but from what, like I said, what we've seen these last three weeks... I think they, I think they ruined short track racing. I really do. That would suck. So, I mean, I guess it's a good thing that they're going down then on the number of short tracks. You know, after we got Dover in a couple of weeks, but after that, uh, Nashville is the next one in almost July. No Gateway and before that. Is, it, oh, I keep see. I keep passing over Gateway because I'm not used to the name. It, it's a one mile ish long track, so. Short enough. Yeah. But, you know, looking at playoffs, you know, Darlington, Kansas, we got Dewey Dia, Bristol, Texas, Talladega, Charlotte, Roval, Vegas, Homestead, Martinville. We have two short tracks and then Phoenix, which Phoenix was Phoenix. Phoenix Phoenix was actually a decent race this year. I thought though. Phoenix was a good race. So yes. I will I will give them that. Phoenix was a decent race for a quote unquote short track, mile track. But 
so far the tracks underneath a mile yeah. are awful. We are now going to Talladega Super Speedway for the second eh, second slash third Super Speedway race of the year. Uh, <laughs> Two and I, a half. I haven't decided if I. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't decided if I want to fully throw in Atlanta there. Um, but, I'm, you know, I'm obviously, not, I'm not particularly. Uh, let's just before we get into, it, I'm not using Atlanta pretty much at all in this analysis oh, no. this week. I no, I haven't thought about Atlanta since the end of Atlanta. Exactly. Um, but so we talk about DFS a lot when it comes. People still don't get it, and we we preach this every time. You know, just taking back a look at ownerships um, from the Daytona 500. When there's bigger names that start in the back, everybody knows, everyone smart in DFS knows, stack the back, pivot to mid-pack, upper mid-pack options, and build your lineups that way. Like, we say it every time. Sprinkle a few forward, yeah. Yeah, sprinkle a few forward. But then again, so Daytona 500 happened this year. We had Kyle Larson on the pole get almost 18% ownership. Brad Keselowski starting in third, almost 18% ownership. Um, Going back, you know, further back, the big names got the ownership that started further back. Eric Amarola started 38th. He was over 40% owned. Austin Dillon started 36th. He was 44% owned. Denny Hamlin starting 30th got 53%. But then you got guys like Todd Gilliland who ran top 10 for a lot of that race, starting 29th, getting 8% ownership, 9% ownership. Uh, David Reagan, who's been a great super speedway racer in the past and was actually in the optimal lineup this year, 9% ownership starting 34th. Casgrala, 8%. And Casgrala, you know, with the money team, we didn't know quite what to expect from that car. Starting 35th, though, 8% ownership. This is the stuff that doesn't make sense. Before we, before we get, you know, talking about all of that, though, I, I do want to point out something that I thought was interesting. I've been keeping track of optimals for super speedways just over the last this season and last season. And one thing I noticed, so the optimal for the Daytona 500 this year was Austin Sendrick, who won the race, Ryan or Bubba Wallace, who finished second, Ryan Blaney, who finished fourth, Eric Amarillo, who finished fifth, David Reagan, who finished eighth, and then Daniel Hemrick, who finished 12th. Total salary used, 45900 I had two people starting in the top seven in it. Further, I, I always keep track of the top 10 scores in DraftKings on super speedways, in addition to looking at the optimal. Kyle Busch was seventh highest. Chase Briscoe was eighth highest. And Keselowski was 10th highest. They started 10th, 9th, and 3rd, uh, respectively. So that gives us five drivers in the top 10 scorers from the Daytona 500 that started inside the top 10. Looking back last year, we had one in the Daytona 500 that started in the top 10 uh, that were in the top 10 in scoring, did not make the optimal. Brad Kozlowski made the optimal at Talladega 1 last year. He won the race. He started 10th. Daytona 2 last year, nobody in the top 10 in the optimal Ryan Blaney won the race and he was only the eighth highest scoring driver because he started sixth. And then Kozlowski made the optimal at Talladega two last year, finishing second uh, after starting seventh. Is this, how much should we react to this? 
obviously, conventional wisdom says, no, this isn't going to be a trend. There's not suddenly going to be where the highest higher starters are also getting in the optimal here at Daytona. Am I looking too much into this, bringing it up, or is this something to definitely keep you know your your finger on the pulse and see if it happens again? No, it's it's just a it's an aberration. Look mm-hmm. at the cars that wrecked. They were all in the mid pack or further back. But what if it's the front guys that wreck? You know, the guys starting first through twelfth, whatever. Right. It it just happened to work out this way. It doesn't always happen. It usually, by and large, usually as you just gave evidence to last year, doesn't happen. Mm. But it can still happen. It's not unheard of. It, there has been a couple races. I remember there was a race in the past. Uh, I don't know if it was a Daytona 500 or something, but I think it was uh, third and fifth ended up in the optimal lineup and another driver in 11th or something. So starting 11th, I should say. So like three out of the top 11 starting pos- positions were in the optimal lineup. Um so it's, it's a rarity, but it can happen. That's why I say you still need to have optimally a few percentage of, of the drivers starting towards the front because that can happen. Just not not 18% pole sitter. Especially when it's Kyle Larson and he's led <laughs> one lap per race at super speedways average in his career. Right. But he was, I will note. I, I cannot believe. I mean, that was most... I think he led one lap in that race, didn't he? Or two or something? Uh, Zero? I don't even remember. I, uh, I want to say it was only one. I'll pull it up real quick. Yeah. Uh, while I'm pulling that up, I do want to note, so average starting position among the six drivers in the optimal for this year's Daytona 500 was 22.2, which is pretty much on par for where it was last year. 25.7 at Daytona last year, 21.7 at Dega. 24 at Daytona 2 and 20 at Talladega. Kind of noteworthy there that both Talladega races were three to four positions higher than the average at Daytona. Yeah, and uh, some of that probably had to do with the formula, you know, so there was no qualifying. Yeah. But but also well, Daytona typically ends up pretty special. Daytona 500 at Daytona because you have the dual races and if you have a wreck, all of a sudden you got good cars starting in the back in the dual races. We don't see that as much for Dega or for the summer Daytona race when there actually is qualifying, you still, you get your slower cars starting in the back and that's where it's like, instead of stacking the back, you're stacking, you're still playing a few of those. You're still playing those guys in the back because they have a chance to avoid the wrecks and finish in the top 15 and make the optimal lineup. But what you're really playing is the driver starting in the, the lower twenties, you know, or let's say the higher twenties, like 25 through 29. And then in like 20 through 24 as well, a little less, because those are like the faster cars that can keep up with the pack more easily that can get to the front. You know, your, your Eric Joneses, your Ty Dillons, those kinds of drivers. So you're, you're stacking more in the twenties and the, the very forward thirties instead of like the back, because typically we're not getting as many Eric Almarolos or Denny Hamlin's starting in the thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle Larson did lead one lap in this year's Daytona 500. And he was the pole sitter. Right. Um, but yeah, like and I and I put this chart up every time I do an article DFS wise for super speedways, because I don't think enough people realize that place differential matters so much at these races. Like this the stat that I threw out for the Daytona five hundred, my Daytona five hundred article this year, 
is that a driver starting 35th that finishes 12th scores more DraftKings points than a driver that starts 10th and finishes second. Mm-hmm. Like you completely have to change your mindset when it comes to building lineups here. Like you, place differential is so important because fastest laps are completely spread out throughout the field. You know, laps led don't matter a ton, especially here at Daytona or at Talladega, because we only have 188 laps. Mm-hmm. So with Rex and everything, like, and that's especially true for fastest laps with Rex and everything. But um, one thing, you know, before we get into full on strategy, DFS wise, betting wise, where you can make money here, I kind of want to talk about the difference between Talladega and Daytona because there are certain drivers that are very good at one or the other. And there's some that are very good at both. But there's definitely a list of drivers that are significantly better like at Talladega than they are at Daytona. And one guy that comes to mind is Ty Dillon. Ty Dillon, Ty Dillon's record at Talladega is ridiculous. He's never finished worse than 17th here in eight starts, which I don't know, like the, the probability of getting in a wreck, but he has to be, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense coming off his best finish of third here. The last time he raced here, he's finished third, 12th and 10th in his last three starts. Now those are with Jermaine racing back in 2020 and 2019. Uh, do you think that uh, obviously Talladega and Daytona race a lot differently? Um, and uh, I, I guess what's, what's overall your, your kind of thoughts there about the differences between the two um, and, and drivers in general. Well, so here's the thing. The Daytona 500 is like almost its own special event. If we look at Ty, uh, Ty Dillon at Daytona, three of his four bad finishes came in the Daytona 500. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the three, the four non-bad finishes he's had, one was in the Daytona 500, and he finished 16th, 6th, and 4th in the summer Daytona uh, or, or fall, I guess, for recent years, Daytona super speedway race outside of his problems. And it's even his problem race finished 22nd. So he's actually just good at these. And the, and Daytona is its own thing, like I said, because crashes just happen. Oh, I forgot this year's Daytona 500. I skipped it. But he finished 11th in this year's Daytona 500. So he's just good. Uh, maybe he's been lucky at avoiding the wrecks, but maybe there's a skill there too. I've always thought somebody that was really good at avoiding wrecks uh, at the beginning part of his career, not so much in the later part of his career, was Jamie Murray. He went through a stretch there where it seemed like he was always yes. near the front at Super Speed Race. Uh, Kevin Harvick, too. Yeah. Uh, I think Kevin Harvick, even now, still is, is really good at avoiding Rex. Obviously, he didn't in the Daytona 500, but uh, yeah. What a great car. Oh, him and Gil. Yeah, both, both, I remember both you. Yeah, you and I, ha- well, you and I were so close in, in this year's Daytona. You know, just on where our strategy was, you know, heavy on Harvick, heavy on, mm-hmm. on Gilliland. And, oh man, I was going to win that million. I know it. if that last, <laughs> if, if, if the race had somehow gone green, the last 13 laps, I, I know that's a stupid, ridiculous thing for the Daytona 500, but if it had somehow done that, I would have won a million dollars probably. Well, obviously there's still a good chance I wouldn't have, but I'd like to believe that I was in contention for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to who who won that million for the millionaire maker at Daytona, you know, we, we spent a little bit of time 
earlier talking about optimal. I don't remember. I don't think like even we rarely see the optimal lineup hit in DraftKings. Right. Uh, top lineup that won the million at Daytona this year ended up with three forty four point five fantasy points. Optimal had three sixty six point four. So they had uh, they had five of the six. They just had Custer instead of Cindric. Right. So still a damn good lineup. Um, obviously to win the million, but um, so one thing you know DFS wise, like I said earlier, the big names get the attention. The big names starting in the back get attention. The the guys with good track, like as much as we say track history doesn't matter, it's still going to get people on certain drivers because like Denny Hamlin's a very good super speedo driver. I know where I stand on these, and I'm sure you do as well. And that's, you know, like Todd, I, I, I don't know what to think about Todd Gillen yet this week, but assuming he qualifies like 28th or something, I hope he's under 10% ownership again. I just don't know if he will because he's, I feel like Gillen's getting some, some recognition um, yep. for being a very good low dollar play. Plus, plus there won't be the Denny Hamlins or the Eric Almarola's or the Austin Dillon's starting in the thirties either. So that's just going to mm-hmm. inflate his ownership because you're going to have more, I wouldn't say shit boxes, but more lower tier cars starting in the back. Mm-hmm. Now, that also means that like the the Denny Hamlins and the and the bigger name guys that start in the twenties are going to get a ton of ownership this week, or should you know depending on how qualifying fully plays out. But just in a what's likely to happen going through my head, you know the the bigger name guys starting twentieth or worse are going to get high ownership. I am always going to be on the on the strategy side of underweight on those guys, overweight on the lower owned guys in the back, like. Not, I'm not, I'm never super heavy on the, um, you know, the back marker, back markers. I still don't, for, for the big GPPs, I still don't love going that far down because I don't see them in the optimal very often. But, you know, like Todd Gilliland, uh, even Cole Custer, who started 31st and at Daytona, Daniel Hemrick, who started 33rd, guys like that, like, I think that's your best opportunity to, have a very drivers with very high ceilings that you can get major leverage on the rest of the field with these guys. And then small pivots everywhere else. I think it's going to be the spire guys. If we're talking Daytona 500, not so much because they started in the back part of the twenties, mid twenties, back part of the twenties castle and uh, LaJoy. Mm-hmm. But if we're looking and let's say most of the guys are the good drivers are qualifying up front and the middle guys are qualifying in the middle and, and the back guys are qualifying back. Mostly. Now, obviously, there'll be a little shakeup here and there. Then if you're getting Castle starting 33rd, but he's not, nobody's going to play him. Give me all of the Spire cars starting in the 30s, right? Give me Corey LaJoy, you know, because people are going to look at Ty Dillon and he finished 10th or 11th or whatever it was, lost he finished 11th because I had him top 10 and I had him top Chevy. He lost <laughs> all of that by a foot. Ugh. But people are going to look at Ty Dillon. They're going to look at Eric Jones. They're going to look at Todd Gilliland. They're going to look at Daniel Hemrick. They're not going to look at Landon fucking Castle. Right. Right. So this is the week I really like the David Reagans, even though he obviously Reagan was in the optimal for Daytona. I really like the David Reagans or really like Landon Castles. 
What about a Cody Ware? I don't know. I mean, it's the same team as David Reagan. He's not the same super speedway racer as Reagan, but clearly he will have a car that is capable of doing what David Reagan did with it. I, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's like, and remember when at the Daytona 500, we were curious, like what Justin Haley's ownership was going to be because everybody knows Justin Haley's a great super speeder racer. Mm. He wasn't that, he wasn't that high on at all. Was he? He was, yeah, he's at 15.64. What if this is the starting, week for Justin Haley? Starting 25th. Uh, I'm trying to, so you mentioned, you know, the cars. David Reagan was in that 15 car in Daytona when he finished uh, eighth. He's running that same car for Rick Ware this year. Um, this week. Yeah, yeah, this this week, sorry. Yaley's in the 55, which did not run Daytona. Right. Who? What car is the 55? Is that that? I don't, has that ran this year? Uh, no, that's, that's MB- the MBM. MBM, the Timmy Hill team. That they they were so bad. Yes, so slow. Yeah. Uh, they it looks like yeah they're not even running their sixty six. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, just the I don't know why they switched to fifty five. That's weird. But uh, we got Noah Gregson in the sixty two this week for Beard. Mm-hmm. Did you see that car yet? I love it. It looks like uh, Wendy's car. Yeah, it looks like those uh, those bomb pops, those red, white, and blue popsicles. Man, like bump his ownership up just because of the car. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I will say, Trix was in that auto owners this past weekend, and he was garbage. You know what else was on him this weekend was the Jordan Jinx. Yeah, that's true. So, that's true. Sorry. So, sorry, auto owners, that I ruined one of your races. <laughs> but yeah, we got uh, we got Hembrick back in the sixteen for Colleg. Um, and like I said, Reagan's in the fifteen for Rick Ware. Yeah. So, so going back to to these drivers, there is so much. Another driver that that comes to mind this week that I think. Obviously, starting starting lineup isn't set yet. Nothing like that. But uh, Harrison Burton been awful all year. My point in bringing this up is: don't let stuff like that sway your mindset when it comes to the optimal strategy of these races. Like just because Harrison Burton, like if anything, that should bump up your ownership, yes. in my opinion, of Harrison Burton. Because yeah. everyone's going to be like, oh, he's been awful all year. He hasn't done anything. If he's starting 28th, yes, he is do, a great play. Do you remember what happened to Harrison Burton at Daytona? Uh, did he get spun by Keselowski? Like yeah, coming to the end of stage one. Coming to the end of stage one, Keselowski's mm-hmm. been a little too aggressive. Spun Harrison Burton, which ended up taking out a couple other cars as well. I think Byron was in that very first wreck or something. But he was up front. I mean, he started towards the front, but he also... Kept running up front towards the end of stage one. So absolutely don't count out somebody like a Harrison Burton. I love that call. Uh, I love yeah. the Landon Castle. I love Justin Haley, Daniel Hemrick. These, I actually almost don't love Ty Dillon as much because he's been so good at these super speedways. People recognize that and see that. And I think if all of those guys are back there, Ty Dillon's going to be the one that gets all the ownership. So I love mm-hmm. pivoting off of Ty Dillon to these other guys if, if you know let's say they all start 27 through 32 or something Cole, Cole Custer's another guy that doesn't get love 
on these tracks because he doesn't he typically doesn't finish them. All it takes is one, like these races are so random, guys. Like I normally don't do 150 lineups for these. I might this week actually. When I throw in, when I use the Fantasy Labs optimizer, I make like we've talked about this before. You make rules on you want this many drivers starting between this, this many between this. I pump up like the randomness in that optimizer to mm-hmm. almost as high as it'll go. As you and should. I just let it run. As you should. Yeah. And you know why? Because when I build statistical models of Daytona, Talladega, the best I can get is like 15% predictability, which means you should really have like 85% randomness. Yeah. And then it all comes down to what positions you want to be with these drivers and where you predict their ownership to be and then where you want to be with that. Mm-hmm. And then aside from that, it's all, it's so random. Like that's why I, these making lineups for these races are so damn fun. I'm going to the fantasy labs optimizer right now. And I'll tell you all exactly what I do in the settings uh, for the basic settings. Right? So let me find um, a valid slate here. Uh, let me go back this past weekend. There we go. All right. So I'm going to go on the optimizer. So if you go to Fantasy Labs, you click on optimizer. I'm literally telling you what I'm going to do for uh, Daytona. So let's say uh, what's 35,000 divided by 50,000. So I'm going to go like 70, 75% minimum salary cap, right? So I'm going to go, let's say, say 70, 70% minimum salary cap. So I can have lineups as low as 35,000. Max salary Mm -hmm. cap. I'm actually going to do 99.9 because I don't want to have any $50,000 lineups. But people still will play $50,000 lineups. Mm -hmm. Right? So I'm going to go 99% max salary cap or 99.9. The range of outcomes. 50%. 50%. That's literally what I do every time. And there's also something called bounce. And what that does is it, so it's a very mathematical thing, but if you're building an optimizer and like, let's say Danny Hamlin is projected for like by far and away the most points, he's just going to be in every top lineup. Right. So when you're an optimizer, you're just going to have a hundred percent Danny Hamlin until you run out of possible Danny Hamlin lineups or whatever, essentially. Well, you could limit that by limiting his exposure, but it's still going to put him in the top 45% of lineups if you limit him to 45% exposure, which is still all going to have the same other top drivers. So to randomize the other drivers you get them with, we do something called bounce. And so if you 50% range of outcome and 50% bounce, that will, what that'll do is if it inserts him into a lineup, it'll drop his projection by half the next time. Now that 50% range of outcomes could still elevate that halfway projection back up 50%. So let's say he was projected for 100 points. His next projection will be 50, but with 50% variance, it could be up as high as 75-point projection, and he could still end up in the second lineup. So it kind of helps shuffle it, and then that bounce gets cut in half every time. So he'd be projected for 50 points uh, if he was in the – let's say he was in lineup number one. Lineup number two, he'd be projected for 50 points. If he doesn't make it in that lineup – he gets projected for 75, so cut that in half. Cut 75, the difference between 75 and 100 in half, then all of a sudden he's in 87.5 points projected, right? And there's still that variance. So it helps scatter 
those good players as well, instead of just having like all the top players clustered in your lineup. So that's what I do on literally just the general tab for super speedways on the fantasy lab optimizer. Obviously there's player correlations tab, the player groups tab, custom tab. Those are all super useful, especially this weekend for super mm-hmm. speedway racing. You can do things like at most two drivers starting uh, under 10 and a half starting position in your lineup at least three drivers starting 25th or worse. Like you can do those kinds of things in the custom, or you can do player groups where you say like, I've mo- at most one of the shit boxes uh, player correlations. Like you could correlate some of the Fords, you can correlate some of the Toyotas or whatever you want to do. Anti-correlate things. So the fantasy labs optimizer is so fucking good for super speedways, especially it's great all the time, but for super speedways, I can build lineups really damn quickly in the snap of a finger and feel good about it just as long as yeah. I have good rules built into there in the settings. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. Like I'm, I'm messing with it right now. You know, you know, you can do when in cl- when lineups include any of, and then put drivers and then use increase or decrease these drivers by a certain percent. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm with you. I it took me. I didn't start using Fancy Labs Optimizer till last year. But holy shit, I would never use anything else for Super Speedway races. And even you know, I, I use it for every week whenever whenever I do a ton of entries, uh, and don't build them by hand. But yeah, if I'm doing 150, and I do plan on on doing it this week for Talladega, as do I. Definitely, as do I. Yeah, just yeah, going and like I said, making it making it random because that's all that matters. Yep, bump up that randomness and uh, set some rules, right? We want to have, as Jordan and I have talked about, we want to have drivers starting towards the back. Stack the back, except in the, if, if all the shit boxes are starting in the back, maybe stack the middle back portion instead of the very back portion, that kind of thing. And then the pivots become guys in the middle of the field. So that's kind of where I'm looking at this week. You can still sprinkle in those guys up front. Like I said, you know, I, I still like having at most like a rule that says like, at most, I can have two drivers starting in the top 10. And that might change it. We've talked about this tier thing. Like, if you have, like, Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski starting 10 and 11, why would I cut it off at 10 when I should instead be cutting it off at 11, right? That kind of thing. Right. So don't strictly say top 10. Like maybe it's top 9 or 8 one race. Maybe it's top 11 or 12 one race. But you got to look right. at where those, like, if you go all of a sudden from a Brad Keselowski in 12th to, like, a Todd, no offense, Todd Gillen starting in 13th, you probably got to draw the line in 12 and a half. Right. And it, and that's just another, you know, like all of that goes into where ownerships end up on these races too, mm-hmm. which I found last year, especially in the second Talladega race, super easy to predict ownership yep. in these races because it's a, it's like a, just a group think mentality, which doesn't make sense. Like I don't, uh, what's, what's typically, you know, the highest you'll go on a, exposure wise when it comes to one of these drivers because we typically see uh just in general oh just in general um with okay so i mean daytona 500 denny hamlin's a great example he was Mm -hmm. 52 53 percent played i think i had him and to be fair i'll actually go lower on denny hamlin than i probably should because i like the extra leverage but I think I played him, I honestly don't remember, but around 40%, maybe a little over 40%. That's not the low, or that's not the 
the highest I will go. I think I had a couple of the drivers near 45, 50%, but that's about as high as I will go is in the 40 to 50 range. Just because if you look at the history of super speedway racing, and I made a lot of tweets about this for Daytona, you're, you're averaging like at least 35% of the field wrecking out depending on the slices of super speedway races you're looking at. Which means if your driver was perfect and won the race every time outside of the times he didn't wreck, he would only be in the optimal lineup 65% of the time. So you should never, ever be above 65% on any driver. And that still obviously would mean he has to end up in the optimal lineup every time out of that 65%. Now, there are other slices of data which say maybe there'll be higher uh, DNF rates and based off what we saw at Daytona, I, there, we were worried about Daytona being spread out and like these little four pack groups and stuff. Remember that? That didn't mm-hmm. happen at all. That didn't, not once did that happen in the race. So, you know, some of our potential projections on DNF rates were a little too low and we still had a really high DNF rate. So, you know, maybe it's more like a 40. 40 or 45 or a 50% DNF rate or major problem rate, I should say. And, and I consider any major problem for a super speedway not being on the lead lap. Cause you should be on the lead lap. If you're, if you're fast oh, and yeah. don't have problems. Right. So um, that's the way I consider it is lead lap rate. We should, if you're not on the lead lap, you can't, you can't end up in the optimal lineup at a super speedway if you're not on the lead lap. So I look at that and then I say, well, what's the probability? Well, it might be as high as 50% or 45%, which means you shouldn't go over 55% on any driver unless you're really trying to get certain special kind of leverage. I think there's situations that might be okay. But Denny Hamlin yeah. at 53% was too much in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I've i said it before. I'm super aggressive DFS player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I typically... I max out about forty-five to fifty percent. I think I forget. I forget how much Todd Gilland I had at Daytona, but I'm pretty sure it was in the forty. I think range. I had. I think I had like thirty-five <laughs> to forty in that neighborhood, upper thirties. Uh, yeah, and I, it, I, it, I think I had. I think I remember. I had thirty-eight. I had. I think I had thirty-eight for the thirty-eight. Did you? I think so. See, I can't one hundred percent remember. That's another. See, like stuff like that. I like doing that on these races too. Yeah. Like if I if I have a a guy like Gillen that I really like, and just having fun with this. This mm-hmm. is it's all this is to me, and then hoping I profit. You know. But you still have to have a good construction. And, you can't have, you know, right? Like so. So let's say you know it's okay to have ten or fifteen percent of drivers starting all forward, starting starting in the forward part, but you don't want it to be a six lineup, a six driver lineup of all guys starting in the top fifteen either. Even though they may fit your overall oh, percentage, yeah. you still got to make each individual lineup smart. Mm-hmm. And that's where those other rules on the Fantasy Labs optimizer come into play. Not just ownership percentage, but the rules of like, I always said at least three drivers in the back half of the field or you know, give or take a little bit depending on the tiers. But yeah. Yeah. So... um Getting away from DFS a little bit, betting lines are out. Has anything Mostly. struck your fancy as as 
Wait, oh yeah, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out FanDuel for still not having their lines up. Circa Saturday has night, lines. Right? And and you Before know, last FanDuel. year last year we were checking Circa lines live on air and stuff like that uh, as we record this on a Tuesday night. This year it hasn't happened as much, but they have them out now. And for some reason, FanDuel still doesn't have lines on a Tuesday night. It's almost Wednesday on the East Coast as we're recording this. Which is so weird because they are they've been notorious this year, notorious this year for like keeping stale lines up way too long. Mm-hmm. Like, there's been a lot of weird and, and we talked about this before we started recording. There's been a lot of weird happenings this week, including DraftKings suddenly deciding to throw up poll winning odds. What? what in the world? Like where where does this come from? Like where are these decisions being made? My PS my, give us top, give us give us good top twenty lines. My favorite poll bet Again. already got bet down, and I didn't even tweet about it or anything, so it's too bad. Who was that? William Byron at ten to one. I was gonna. That was the first one that stuck out to me. William Byron. All the all the Hendrick Chevys. The, the only other me, one that stands out to me. Chevys. The only other one that stands out to me, and I tweeted about this in the last twenty two. Super speedway races that have been determined by the pole position has been determined by speed. So not the formula that we had in 2020 or 2021. And right. The Daytona 500s in those each year were determined by speed. The last 22 races, Toyota has been on the pole one time. So you got to look at Chevy and there were a lot of Fords too. And guess which Ford looked really good in qualifying this year. In qualifying, not, not the, uh... the race, but in qualifying. Brad Kozlowski. Eric Almarola. Mm. So he's 20 to 1 right now to win the poll, and I don't hate that. I'm there with you. What about, like, and even going back to Daytona, I said I thought Ford's had an advantage. And I feel like there's. Like even Cole Custer at fifty to one, Stuart Haas, you know, same thing with with Eric Amarola, that sticks out to me a little bit. But um, but yeah, Blaney's the favorite to win the pole, co co favorite with Larson, which and I think is now. silly because Chevys have been dominating the pole at super mm-hmm. speedways. Seven of the last eights uh, on speed have been Chevys. Most of those Hendrick. There was a, a Ricky Stenhouse and an Austin Dillon in there, I think. I. So the, yeah, top two, top two of Daytona this year, Kyle Larson, Alex Bowman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like part of me just wants to put a hundred bucks on Larson, Bowman, Byron, and Elliot, and just roll with that. <laughs> yep, I mean, it's not the worst not idea, that I'm, but not that I'm going to do it. But yeah, you know, as long as the Hendrick car wins, you're profiting. The only way I'd bet a Toyota, right? So. Toyota's been on the pole one time in the last 22 polls determined by speed at Daytona or Talladega. So that's like one out of 22 odds. So it should be 21 to one is break even, but that's for all Toyotas. So each individual Toyota, if every, all of them had an equal chance should be one sixth of that. So like you can't, you can't bet a Toyota unless you're getting 120 to one odds essentially. And the longest is Truex at 40 to one. Yeah. We got we got Hamlin at uh, we got Hamlin at where is he? Oh, there it is, eight to one. We've got Bubble Wallace at 
20 to 1. We've got Kyle Bush at 14 to 1. Uh, like I said, Truex at 40. Wouldn't wouldn't head to head qualifying matchups be fun? That would be fun. With with how they have these Toyotas priced to, yep. to win it. Yep, yep. Kurt at 30 and uh Christopher Bell at 20. So yeah, Truex is the longest. And I guess that means we're gonna transition to race betting, but Circa coming through with the Truex at 45 to 1, and I love that. You know why? He was really good at Daytona this year. He was really good at Daytona. He won both stages. He won stage one. He won stage two. He's 45 to 1 at Circa. You know I'm betting that. And he's, one, he's one of those that he's does not get the finishes at these tracks, but all it takes is one time of him not wrecking. Like it, it, at this point to me, it's like a running joke. Like Truex wrecked again. It was like the super speed. Yeah, yeah. Now where I use that to my advantage or have in the past is when he starts like mid twenties and then his ownership skyrockets. I'm always, you know, that's just another example of that's me not being a fate. On the opposite. That was the origination of the Paul Menard pick of the week was everybody was on Truex. And I was like, why don't you just play Paul Menard starting one spot for the forward? <laughs> Everybody's on Truex. I think he started like 26th. And nobody was talking about Paul Menard starting 25th. Literally the origin of the Paul Menard pick of the week was the summer Daytona race uh, of 2000. And I don't know what year, 16, maybe. Uh, Paul Menard, I think, finished in the top three. You can go look at Paul Menard's wiki and find it, I'm sure. But it was the summer Daytona race. Paul Menard pick of the week started because too many people were on Truex. Hmm. But Truex was awesome at Daytona this year. Truex almost won the Daytona 500 in 2016. It's not like he can't have a good run here. And 45-1 to at Circa... Is, that's, that's is a bet value. for me. That's a bet for me. I am absolutely where, betting that. Where I'm looking in, looking up quick. Um, Truex on the other books. Best you can get him is 33 at BetMGM. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to Daytona, you mentioned Eric Amarola. Good in qualifying. First round of qualifying uh, at Daytona this year. Five cars cracked the 180 mile per hour mark. All four Hendrick cars and Eric Amarola in fifth. Um, Chastain was in sixth, close behind, and then Truex in seventh. And then, of course, final round, Larson ended up as Larson, Larson Bowman, Byron Amarola. Larson and Bowman both cracked 181. Mm-hmm. Uh, Truex is up there as well, again in the second round. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, he yeah, was but still, really good at Daytona. St- Still three tenths off from Larson's speed, but but yeah, Hendrick. I don't know what the hell they've figured out when it comes to um, qualifying at these super speedways, but there is definitely an advantage there for them, and it's been like that for years. I want to say like six years now. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned true X 45 to one at circa anybody else sticking out to you 
when it comes to value, maybe not even outright, but do we have any other odds this week? Any matchups? Top three, top fives? <sighs> yeah, I mean, we got the we got the matchups everywhere. It's kind of yeah. I I will say this about matchups. I I will bet any matchup at plus one fifty or longer, no matter who it is. Oh, absolutely, plus one fifty. Yeah, yeah. And for super there will always be, for super speedways. Yes, for super speedways, there will always be some book that has like one or two lines like that, and no matter who it is, I, I'm just going to go hit it because again, randomness with these mm-hmm. races. But um, I'm really interested to see what Ballybet does with top fives this week because, as we talked about before, they are crazy generous with their top five odds. And if they're going to do that again at Talladega, I think there's going to be some awesome, awesome bets to make out there. But I feel like uh, I feel like with the betting market, the betting sports books have tightened up. Yes, on super speedways, and there's not value out there anymore. Like, I can't see. I love anything Stenhouse right at thirty-five to one at Do you? Caesars. Love Stenhouse. Oh, the dude is always running up front at Super Speed Race. He was at the Daytona Five Hundred this year. He was in Atlanta this year, even though it's a pseudo Super Speedway. He's always up front. He's aggressive as hell, and he's won twice in his career at Super Speedways, and he still gets it done in JTG equipment at Super Speedways, getting to the front. It's just a matter of when is that time he's going to be leading the last lap at a Super Speedway. I love mm-hmm. Stenhouse at 35-1. to 1. I got him 40-1 to 1 at Westgate to open the week. But I still love 35-1 to 1 at Caesars. Another aggressive driver that's at 35-1. to 1. Ross Chastain. Ross and I got him 40-1 to 1 at Westgate as well. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't track Westgate in the action app. But I do have Ross Chastain and Ricky Stenhouse at 40-1 to 1 this week. Uh, another good super speedway racer that's at thirty-five to one is Austin Dillon. Any any liking of that? I think that size says everything. But my issue with Austin <laughs> Dillon is he's good, but he's not great. He doesn't take the lead. He he's there. He's there. And yeah, how many super speedways races has he won? One. And you know how he won it. Everybody else wrecked, and then he wrecked Eric Amarola on you the last lap. You typically don't win these races by being there. You win it by... That's my issue with Chris Busher. He's 28 to 1 yes. at best, 25, 22, 20. But he's there. He's not in front. I want guys that are in front. The Ricky Stenhouses, the, the Eric Joneses, right? Like I want guys that get out front. Because those are the guys that are going to take the win. Absolutely, the Bubba Wallaces. And it's insane, and I mean this in a good way, that he's the favorite at some books. The tied favorite with some other drivers at certain books. Yeah, it's well-deserved. It's well-earned. He's finished first and second in the last two points paying super speedway races. He's very good at these racetracks. Um, Yeah, you can get him at... how often do we get to say Bubba Wallace sixteen to one? And I got I, people are gonna. I got him fifty to one when he won last year at Talladega, and now he's eleven to one at some books. Right, and you know, and a lot of people are gonna point back to that Talladega race and say, "Oh, you know, the rain, blah blah blah." One thing that I am very certain of 
is that Bubba Wallace is going to win another super speedway race in the yes. cup series yes. before his career is over. He is, it, it, these aren't flukes. He's, he had a shot to win Atlanta. Even though how he a, races. I'm going to start calling Atlanta the pseudo speedway instead of the super speedway. Yeah. He won the pseudo speedway race at Atlanta or not one, but was right up there for the win. Almost. I should say when, uh, if Christopher bell hadn't decided to dive underneath him, I think it was, um, or underneath Ross Chastain or whatever it was like Chastain could have won, but bubble kind of got screwed out on that as well. It was one of those weird situations at the end of Atlanta where bell Chastain Bubba, they were all right there with a shot at the win on William Byron. And if things had just worked out a little differently, uh, it could be one of those three drivers uh, instead of William Byron that had taken that win. And we might have, Nine winners in nine races. Well, I guess not if Chastain, but if Bubba or Bell had won, it would be nine out of nine. And here's the other thing. Look at like, uh, uh, you know, the end of that race there. In both Atlanta and Daytona, I was thinking this as I was saying it. My driver either won the top manufacturer bet or lost it by a foot. And they were both 25 to one or longer. I had Chris Busher, top manufacturer at Atlanta, uh, top four at Atlanta, 25 to one. Austin Dillon, or sorry, Ty Dillon, 40 to one at Daytona, and he lost it by a foot. <laughs> I, I mean, it may have been less than a foot to Chase Elliott. Uh, so I know you tweeted about Todd Gill and 20 to one, and then all of a sudden he was 40 to one at Canby when they posted. They moved that down quick. Yeah, they moved it to 20 to 1 quick. Um, I think that's right on the border of where I'm like, ah, I can't quite do it. Even with Ty Dillon, I can't quite do it. And I went back and looked at my article for the Daytona 500, and I said, you could bet Ty, uh, sorry, Ty Dillon, Todd Gillen, Ty Dillon. I'm getting almost tongue-tied here. Uh, you can bet Ty Dillon down to 25 to 1, even though my model had him break even around 16 to 1 just because my model has a range of uncertainty, right? So there's plus minus on anything statistically. So to be sure, be sure, be certain that I was making a good bet, I said, well, 25 to one for Ty Dillon. Well, do I like Ty Dillon to win top Chevy more? Or do I like Todd Gillen to win top Ford more? I still think I'd probably rather have Ty Dillon, even though it's only one race sample size we have for Todd Gillen. Um, so that's why I don't think I can quite bet Todd Gilliland at 21 and I'm not betting Ty Dillon at 20 to one. I think those are close enough to fair that I'm not going to bet them, but I certainly understand Ty at 20 or Todd at 20. Yeah. I, I don't plan on betting any of those this week. I I'm not seeing much value at all outside of, you know, I think I'm going to hit Chastain, but um, but yeah, going back to, to Atlanta quick, you know, Chastain, like you said, finished second and you mentioned the Spire cars earlier this race, Spire, Corey LaJoy finished fifth, um, and Balicki in the 77 finished 16th. Yeah. So and Landon Castle is better than Bill- Balicki, believe me. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, another, you know, David Reagan was in that race as well. He finished 18th after starting 35th. Um, just trans to look at 
I sure. think and, I think you know, I'm, I'm tweeting it out right now. I coined that term pseudo speedway with Atlanta. Yes. <laughs> um let's uh I'm checking out. I'm looking at um <clears throat> Atlanta ownerships here really quick. Again, it, it it was it was a predictable super speedway again. Todd Gillen starting twenty fifth, six percent ownership, but then you got Truex Bell and Stenhouse all getting thirty six or more percent starting twenty sixth, twenty seventh, twenty eighth, and then you know McDowell starting twenty ninth getting eighteen percent. So yep. fun stuff there, yeah. but um, yeah, I. These races are very fun DFS-wise. It's so easy. It, it happens to me often during these. Like I find myself having such a good time putting these lineups together that I like almost make too much. Mm-hmm. But um, what? let's talk a little bit about the difference between building a lineup for a smaller field contest versus the big GPPs. Cause if you're going to take down this week's GPP, you got what? 30,000 other people to beat. Um, yeah. And I, I mentioned this before, like those aren't my bread and butter. Um, yeah. 31.3 K in the $15 GPP this week. I'm more of a high dollar, lower field type of guy. And, that's that, that's just that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Do you have to get as aggressive in these? Do you, do you? Uh, I guess do you take the same approach in high dollar contests this week versus or as opposed to your 150 lineup in big GPPs? Like I, I go, let's, let's I go the, way more safe in high dollar smaller field. Yeah. I go way more safe, and by safe I mean starting more guys in the back because. You don't have to beat as many people. And there are still people. You see it every week. I mean, every, every I would say, at least once a month, maybe even twice a month, you will send me, and not to make fun of anybody, just, just be like, this guy's starting drivers first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and seventh in a $444 contest. That's never going to win in any race ever. No. Right? And... It's not to make fun of anybody, but it's just like, this is what happens even at high dollar that people will enter these kind of lineups. So yeah, there's still money to be made at high dollar. And if people are going to enter lineups where they're playing three, four, five drivers starting towards the front, and we know there's a ton of randomness, the profitable thing to do is just stack the back. And maybe for if all the shit boxes are starting at the back, stack the high 20s and low 30s you know mm. it that, that might be the profitable thing to do and i don't see any reason to deviate that from that ever maybe it's not going to win every time but it is a very long-term profitable strategy my cash game lineups for the daytona 500 will always be driver starting like 27th or worse so for something like daytona or talladega it's probably going to be the same thing, except maybe shift it up to like 25th, even in high dollar or whatever you want to call it. You know, mm. my, you know, my take on, on high dollar lineups at Daytona, depending on 
what projected ownership is. I always, I do, and we've talked about this before, I do the small pivots. Mm-hmm. If I, like I have the guy starting 29th projected at 12% ownership and the guy starting 30th at 35% ownership, you know what? I just pivot off that guy starting 30th and go to the guy starting 29th. Yes, absolutely. And that is and that is where, or Daytona, for example, this year, Austin Dillon starting 36th, Eric Amarola starting 38th. I didn't think it was smart to go against both of them. So by high dollar lineups, I just went with one of them instead of two because most yes. people are going to go with both. Um, and that's just just a very small. And, and again, this is this is a smaller field tournament on DraftKings, but that's all it takes to win the smaller field tournaments sometimes, depending on how the race plays out. And and for the most part, you know, you always mention or you mentioned, you know, some of the guys that just don't know what the hell they're doing, just throwing money away at these contests for the most part, the higher dollar contests are full of sharper players. Yeah. In general. So not to, not to put anybody or act like we're putting anybody down there. Like those, these contests are hundred percent players. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, I was just saying that you still uh, can find the occasional lineup where it's like, wow. Oh yeah. I don't think I'd enter that. Uh, Yeah. In my, you want my PayPal address? Like you can just, just send me the cash instead. Yeah, send me that <laughs> part of your rake or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, like like we'll see. I think Gill and you know in high dollar this year Daytona he was like at fourteen or fifteen percent as opposed to eight percent in the big GPP. So like, there's definitely sharper people um, in those contests. But overall, yeah, like randomness again. That's all. That's all I can say this week when it comes to DFS wise. Any uh, any final tips that you'd like to give people, whether it be betting or, or DFS, for whatever the race is called this week at Talladega? <laughs> yeah, it's usually um, like the Geico Five Hundred or something. It it is the Geico Five Hundred. So is it? Yes. Yeah. So I would say, obviously, the most important thing. First of all, there's no practice this week. None. Absolutely no practice. They're qualifying and then they're racing. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So they're qualifying and then they're racing. So don't pay attention to one qualifying lap when you're determining anything. Take take note of that. Our reaction there, guys, of no practice. When When's the last time you looked at practice speeds for a super speedway race when making DFS lineups? Never. Exactly. Right. <laughs> that's my point. <laughs> so, and that's because we were, we we're, I, PJ, the only reason I knew there's no practice because PJ told me, uh, five hours ago or whatever, four hours ago. I was like, really? Oh, I didn't even look. I didn't care. Right. Like, that's yeah. how little I care about practice super speeders. But if some people are willing to look at that and influences even a little bit, that's just one mm. little thing to not care about. My model, my statistical model, which uses, uh, proven techniques to determine the best way to model races or, or model anything really to select features that go into your model. The best features, the most statistically significant features has never, ever, ever selected practice for a super speedway race <laughs> ever because it has no predictive ability on the outcome of a super speedway race. So I've never paid attention to practice at a super speed because it's irrelevant. There's sometimes guys are drafting together. Sometimes they're not, but 
Who cares now? Because there's no practice. But yeah. don't pay attention like you to said the qualifying that. lap and, and being like, oh, this is a good reason to play this driver or not play this driver. That's ridiculous. Yeah. that uh, I, I feel like that almost, like, it kind of hurts us DFS-wise this week that there's no practice because it doesn't give dumb players or anything to, to latch on to. Yeah, but there wasn't right. there weren't practices last year either at some of them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's right. But the last two years, I should say. For Daytona, obviously I, there was, but I think the other three there weren't each year. Yeah. Have you done uh doc block this week? I have. It's the forty one of cold custard. Ooh. My one of my favorite DFS plays on super speedways. Lately, are you are you Jordan jinxing Ross Chastain? I will be, yes. Oh boy. I might I might run and bet that when we get done here. <laughs> I like that. I, I actually probably will. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I'm on Stenhouse and Chastain forty to one at Westgate. I will be betting Truex forty five to one at Circa. I haven't. I just checked the odds right when we live on air, basically. Uh so I'm definitely betting those. And I'm definitely driving over to California to play DFS. So there you have it. Rotodoc is back this week going for the 100,000 in DraftKings. You know it. Max Enter, baby. I, I have Max I, Enter as I many say, super speedways as I can. Which uh, I did notice that DraftKings did bump up the GPP again to a decent level. 400K total. Uh, second place gets 35. Third gets 20. Fourth is 10. Still, though, you know, you're putting 150 lineups in. You're putting in what? At 15 bucks a piece, you're putting in 2250. 2250. Yeah. You finished seventh, and you're not even getting 2250 back. I think that's better obviously, than what we had at Daytona, it. obviously. Right? Daytona was like 2.25 million and 1 million to first. Almost half of the money to first. <laughs> at least this is 25% to first. Right. Instead of 40 whatever percent. God. And and I, I knew, and we talked about this at the start of the year, if you're new to stacking Denny's or, or in the past few weeks, I went into the Daytona 500. I All I did was I max entered the Millie Maker. I don't think I played many other lineups anywhere else, maybe a couple here or there. But the vast majority of, if I played 150 lineups in the Millie Maker, I might have played 160 total lineups everywhere on DraftKings. I was expecting to lose a lot more money than I did on the Million Maker. And the fact that my lineups did so well, I still lost 33% uh, of what mm-hmm. I invested. And I knew that going in that that was, that was a good result. And had it been yeah. like a normal GPP, I would have actually made money. Had it been a normal prize structure, I would have made money. But because it was what it was, I lost money. But I had a shot at a million dollars. I knew I had a good shot because you and I are both good at this. We understand the theory. We understand the, the construction. We understand the ownership and how you can predict ownership better than you can predict the race itself. And that's huge when it comes to these kinds of races. So I knew my expected value just because of the poor structure of the tournament, not because of poor play, but there isn't a single player on this planet that could go into that with a positive EV expectation. 
Right. I, I, I honestly it, think I'm way up there in the top 1% maybe on expected value on these types of races. And I don't mean that in a bragging way. This is just, this is what my math brain is built for is this exactly this. And I had a shot at the million. I had a shot at the million. I don't know if I will have a shot because I haven't seen the starting lineup or whatever. I felt amazing about the Daytona 500 based off of the way qualifying in the clash and, or not clash, the uh, duels and everything went. I don't know if I'm going to feel amazing. I'm still going to max enter it though, because it's still a plus EV venture in the end with this kind of a structure. Yeah. And other than that, it comes down to a lot of luck having the right strategy and then the race playing out like it needs to, which is the most unpredictable aspect of this weekend's race. Yep. So as we always do, who is your pick to win Sunday at Talladega? Dude, I haven't even thought one, one iota of a second about that. Um, kind of scrolling. David Star. I actually, I'm going to go with Brad Kozlowski. He was crazy aggressive at Daytona. He was up front He's for a lot of Daytona. Really good at, really, really good at Talladega, and then just good at Daytona. Yeah, I'm going to go with Brad Keselowski. I think, I think if he tones down that aggression a little bit, more people will be willing to work with him. Um, I think the aggression he had is a good thing. It, it helps him stay and get to the front. But uh, I certainly think by the end he had hurt himself at the end of that Daytona 500 overall. Uh, but I'm going to go with Brad Kozlowski. I do like the sneaky pick of Truex or Stenhouse. Um, I think Chastain's a good bet. I'm not going to pick him. I think he's a good bet. He's really good at super speedways. And my super long shot, once again, I'm still waiting for fan freaking duel to post lines because <laughs> I'm holding out on this one would be Eric Jones. I DraftKings has him at 70. So if DraftKings has him at 70, FanDuel typically has longer odds than DraftKings. They have a little less. They, they have very similar lines. And FanDuel almost always releases after DraftKings. I think every single time ever. And I feel like there's, not saying anything, I feel like there's a lot of copyage of DraftKings lines with FanDuel. And then they'll just take a little less uh, hold. And so they'll have a little bit better lines. If I can get Eric Jones like 72 or 75, holding out for that so my pick to win is brad kazowski but i like truex like stenhouse like eric jones i'm with you there on eric jones i'm gonna roll pick to win i'm gonna i'm gonna take the easy way out here and i'm gonna go ryan blaney yeah how's it this year long shot Long, yep. Long shot wise, give me Chase Briscoe as a surprise pick. And like I said, I like Chastain. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I I'm, didn't even check where Briscoe's at on the odds chart. As I scrolled through it, the the one that caught my eye again, and you were the one who brought this up, Harrison Burton. Not to win, but I think he could have a damn good finish if. Somebody like a Keselowski doesn't spin him out. And obviously, if he doesn't get caught up in any other risks, I think those Penske cars are strong, and he's in the Penske affiliation. We always saw Matt DiBenedetto do really well in the Penske-affiliated yep. wood 
brother's car. Harrison Burton, I love as a DFS play if he's starting. If and there's no oh. guarantee because he was fast in qualifying and started towards the front. Uh, you know, he had a good duel start toward the front of the Daytona 500. But if he's back there, even if he's like 18th or if he's 18th, he, he might say, be like crazy under owned. Give me, give me Harrison Burton in that 18th to 22nd range yeah, yeah. under 10% ownership. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, Chase Briscoe's at uh, 16 to one. I wouldn't touch that. <laughs> right. You just like him as a pick to win. I just like him to win. I, I'm. There's no way I'm betting Chase Briscoe. William Byron is at 18 to one. I didn't see that one. Byron's before. 25 to one at Circa. I actually think I have to bet that too. I missed that one before. I like William Byron at 18 to one for sure. And if you can get him longer, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Now, people definitely got him at 20 to 1 earlier this week. I haven't checked current odds at the non Las Vegas books. I have it up now. Uh, yeah, 18 to 1 as long as you can get Byron outside of uh, Nevada right now, it looks like. That's um, that's surprising. I mean, Byron's not bad and hasn't been bad at super speedways, and he's been super fast all year. Like, why? I wonder why books are so down on him. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, I I don't understand that. Is he? I mean, he finished second here last year. He finished fourth here in 2020. Hmm. He's won at Daytona before. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he's probably going to start near the front because Hendrick has that uh, whatever advantage they have putting a qualifying lap together. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I said, Chevy's won seven of the last eight. Uh. Five of the last eight, I believe, were Hendrick cars. So, yeah, I mean, the other one was Wild. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. in the JTG winning the Daytona 500 pole and Austin Dillon, mm-hmm. I think, winning a Daytona 500 pole or, or at least some other pole. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now, but definitely seven of the last eight pole winners at super speed races. And I'm not counting Atlanta, which was Chase Briscoe, uh, the pseudo speedway. Uh, I'm not counting that, but. Of the super speedways, seven of the last eight have been Chevy. And the one that wasn't was a Ford. And only one of the last 22 so don't is bet, Toyota. Yeah, don't bet the Toyotas for to win the pole. But they could win the race. Yeah, oh, I agree. They could definitely win the race. The drafting, I mean, the draft is the big equalizer. So even if you don't have the raw speed, that doesn't matter when the draft comes around. Correct. This is also going to be the last race on regular Fox until the Coca-Cola 600 at the end of May. Yeah. And then, well, these are the only two races left on Fox. Everyone, Everything else is on FS1, so we're going to see that crash of ratings here mm-hmm. soon, too. Yeah, the one race that was on FS1 only got one point something million viewers. I think it was when I was looking. Martinsville. Yeah, Martinsville. Which was just awful. <laughs> Nobody should have watched that race anyway. I, I almost feel bad watching oh. it. And I love Martin. I thought my it's one of my favorite tracks of all time. That was terrible. The that I was thought worse my than twenty nineteen. King's app was broken. Yeah. That was worse than the twenty nineteen races. And the twenty nineteen races, at least they had cautions. They had some mid pack ish passing and stuff. Uh this is this was bad. It, I mean this had what one caution outside of I can't remember exactly one or two cautions outside of the, 
the stages. They threw one for just for entertainment with Hamlin's. Yeah, issue. yeah, with Hamlin's that. issue. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, Brad Keselowski, I, I picked him to win. He has to win to get into the playoffs, given his penalty. The big 100-point penalty. There's no way he will point his way in, given his start to the season and his 100-point penalty. He might actually just be the most aggressive of all time, not necessarily in the Stega race, but the Daytona cutoff race. If he hasn't <laughs> won Dega, you might see a level oh. of aggression you've never, ever seen before, and he is aggressive. I was going to say that is not good for the field because no. he will wreck the entire field. He will push everybody as hard as he can and push them out of control. It, it, it's always weird to me with that. I get he's aggressive. I get like you have to do what you have to do, but he's aggressive the entire race. Mm-hmm. He's aggressive on lap seven. He was aggressive, aggressive at the end of stage one. On lap... Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and this isn't a this isn't even a super speedway thing. You go back to the Michigan race last year when he took out Austin Dillon. Yeah, on this on the straightaway for a stage point for one stage point. <laughs> yeah, turned Austin straight into the wall. He didn't obviously he didn't mean to. That was a complete accident. He took full blame, but it still was. I'm side drafting him beyond the start finish line. Yeah, like hey hey Brad, we're on lap seventy of a two hundred lap race. Okay, I'm gonna. Like we're going for the win, even though we're in seventh and eighth. The one thing is, he clearly doesn't need stage points now. So maybe that'll help at the end of stages. There's nothing to race for in those. He's he's not getting in the top sixteen in points. Period. With that penalty, Mm -mm. so maybe that helps. Like maybe Harrison Burton doesn't get spun this time if uh, same situation comes up. But you got to think at the end of the race, he may be the most aggressive guy all season. In a situation, in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. By the way, we actually haven't even talked about the finish. What do you think of Chase Briscoe and 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 Tyler Reddick? I'm, you said you watched the the 15 minute highlights. Yeah. So I assume you saw Chase Briscoe sending it in there on the final turn of the final lap, taking out Reddick, yep. and then the two of them just going over and shaking hands and totally understanding, and Reddick like taking the blame. Uh... I don't like it. I thought the sportsmanship was I, good. I thought Reddick was way too weak there. Reddick pulled a Chase Elliott there. He should have. He should have at least like been irritated. Like I don't. I don't think he should. Like Briscoe was ready for him to punch him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, I forget punched, Reddick I get punched. Seemed happy <laughs> I get <it>. about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that was Redick the thing. Seemed happy about it. Like I, 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 like, I like Reddick. I think he's a good guy, but I think he was too nice there. Too, like, yeah, I think he could be like, dude, I get it, totally understand, but not be like that was actually my fault. He could be like, it was your fault, and I understand. But when he took the blame himself for letting Briscoe get close, that's where he lost me. Yeah, and sometimes. The other guy just has a faster car or is just a little better. And that's not your fault. That's just how races go. Nothing Tyler Reddick did was his fault. And that's my point is like, I liked the sportsmanship. I thought it was great. I thought Briscoe was really great when he was like, I'm ready for him to punch me in the face. If it is what it is, I'm cool with it. Like, good. I thought that was funny. 
I'm actually good with Tyler Reddick being like, yo, I get it. I'm not mad at you. I like that too, because I think it's very understandable. Reddick feels like maybe he would have done the same thing. Where I draw the line, and, and maybe you draw the line different for me, where I draw the line is when Reddick took the blame for it. I would have I wouldn't have hated it as much if Reddick would have said this position flip next time, same thing's gonna happen. Absolutely. That he's 100%. gonna go yeah. Because now he almost closed the door for him to do that, in my opinion. At the same time, like, I think Briscoe's gonna understand if it it's if it returns. Oh, he certainly will, but I like the I like the psyche aspect of it of because mm-hmm. I, I can almost guarantee that those two will be running one two at some point this season again. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they, they've been multiple times this year. Look at Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought, I thought Reddick was, didn't react as, as I'd like, but I mean, I thought Briscoe's reaction was awesome. I, I've, I've been on the fence about whether I like Briscoe or not. I was definitely, uh, I, I enjoyed the Denny Hamlin thing at Indy last year, but I was just kind of on the fence about him. I thought, the the raw video recording of him like going up to talk to Tyler and him be like I'm ready to get punched in the face and I probably deserve it like I thought that was great right I loved that Briscoe actually has like a personality yeah yeah and I think part of it is because Kevin Harvick's his teammate mm-hmm. although that certainly hasn't helped with Cole Custer because no. But uh, I know we're getting off a tangent here. My favorite thing was when Harvick, like when Keselowski and Gordon had the thing and Harvick just comes up and pushes Keselowski into Gordon and a melee starts. <laughs> Harvick was just like, fuck it. If you're just going to talk, if you're just going to talk shit, then just get in there. He just runs up. He just pushes Keselowski in there. It's hilarious. Uh, that's good stuff. I I am such a fan of fights on pit road. Oh, that Ty Gibbs. I mean, we talked about it a week or two ago. The Ty Gibbs, even uh, like Boyer Gordon Mayer. from Phoenix a while back. Like, give me that. that. Give me a. That was fun. Running. They didn't. The, they didn't fight, but yeah, Boyer just chasing down Jeff Gordon through the the garage and stuff. Yes, give me that type of. Mm. Gordon had his moments. I love that about Jeff Gordon. Like he had his moments. The the Boyer one. Uh, if you remember. Jeff Burton and Jeff Gordon had a little thing on track at, uh, I honestly can't even remember the track, but it was a mile and a half for a two mile track. They they got a little, and it was Gordon instigating it. And Burton was like, yeah, I deserved it. Basically <laughs> same kind of deal. Um, and uh, the Keselowski incident, he and he and Jimmy Johnson had a little time there with a few races. Uh, I was, one of those seasons. That's what I was just going to say. They never fought. Yeah. But, like, they were definitely antagonistic toward each other. Yeah, that was yeah. I think it, that happened at Martinsville races, the Johnson versus Gordon, where they they were both you know the yeah. best at that track at that time. And oh yeah, and it, it precipitated a week or two racing. before they were racing each other pretty hard at a mile and a half, and then Martinsville definitely boiled over. Um, nothing physically happened; it was all words. There there were some good ones with Kurt and Kyle Busch. Like I'm not eating any Kellogg cereal or anything. <laughs> <laughs> After the All Star race, I think it was when Kyle Busch was in the uh, the Kellogg's for Hendrick. God, can you imagine that's, if that's can, one, can you imagine if Kyle Busch stayed at Hendrick Motorsports all these years? So that's that's one thing I do want to talk about before we go off. Kyle right. Busch is now ninth in career wins mm-hmm. in the Cup Series with sixty. He's sixteen behind Dale Earnhardt. 
You think he gets there? Yeah, the, I, I do. Uh, Harvick is at 58. I don't think Harvick will get there. But Kyle Busch definitely can. He, he can, and I think he does. And the reason why, he's 36. If he wins two races a year for the next five years until, right? We talk about the age cliff where it's like 41, 42, 40 in that neighborhood. If he wins two races a year, then he's what, six behind? You say he's 16 behind? Yeah, he's 16 behind right now. And I I know, I mean, that, that drive for 200, you know, where everybody's like, oh, Petty has 200 wins and now Kyle Busch has 200 across all three series. That was a big thing to him. I think he will go for it. I think he might need a change of scenery to make it happen, but where would that change of scenery come? Because if we look at the facts, if we look at the facts, he's won four times in the past three years of the JGR. Now, maybe some of that was the lack of practice in 2020 and 2021. But, you know, at least his win this year came pretty early. Even this year, but even this year, like, I don't think there's been a single race where we've been like, yeah, Kyle Busch is going to be at the Vegas mix to win Vegas. This. Vegas, he should have won that. Vegas, Vegas, he should have won. Yep. He had, he had the best Vegas. car in Vegas. But, but outside of that, he hasn't really been in the mix. His best finish outside of the Bristol Dirt Race, which was, honestly, he didn't even have a top three car. He maybe had a fourth or a fifth place car. Uh, and Vegas, outside of those two, his best finish was the Daytona 500. And he wasn't stellar at the Daytona 500. He was seventh mm-hmm. at Martinsville. Seventh at Phoenix. Ninth at Richmond. So the short flats have been back half of the top ten. That is, It is impressive, though. He's now won a race in, what, 17 18, straight years? Tied a record. 18, 18 straight years. The only year he has not won a race was 2004, I believe. 2004, and he only started six yeah. of 36 races. Exactly. He had three DNQs. That was in that Hendrick car. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he wrecked like four of those six races, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there was issues with that 84 car. He was running the 84 for Hendrick Motorsports. 2004. That's weird. Uh, and he attempted to, to, at least he entered in 2003 on the final race here at Homestead, but then withdrew before qualifying mm. in the 60 car for Hendrick Motorsports. But yeah, outside of his, uh, outside of the part partial ish years, he's won every year, his whole career, including his rookie year. And you can't say that about everybody. Jeff Gordon, I don't think, won in his rookie year. Like, Kyle Busch is is among the greatest drivers of all time in the Cup Series. And I don't think there's any debate about it. You can't even argue it. The only reason anyone would argue that would be just because, yeah. You know what's funny to me, though? His first three full seasons in the Cup Series, he won four races Mm -hmm. with shitbox Alan Gustafson calling the shots. 
He moves over in twenty to the next season and gets Steve Addington and he wins eight races. <laughs> I am so anti Alan Gustafson. Gustafson. Yeah. Oh man, he's like on Deddy Hamlin level for me. The the dead to, the dead to you crew chief. <laughs> not not just like the couple races dead to you. Like, I I know like Bowman's been been dead to you or Blaney's been dead to you, that kind of thing, but then they come back. That's like yeah. permanent dead to you is like Denny Hamlin and Alan Gustafson. Yep. Those two might be the only ones on it too. Yeah. Cause like Suarez, I hate the fans more than I hate Suarez. Um right. Austin Dillon. I can't with <sighs> Austin Dillon. I I honestly prefer Ty Dillon to Austin Dillon if in terms of fandom. Not not in terms of quality of racer. I think Austin Dillon is a better racer than his brother. But I I just can't get there with Austin Dillon. I think he's a nice guy. I think he's he's fine. Just as a race car driver, he's overhyped. Yeah. Yeah. I will say it's not been Again, as bad the past year or two with him. I think there was yeah, definitely a time two, three, four, or five years ago it was getting bad. Yeah, two two thousand nine nineteen, he was twenty first in points, six top tens, that's it. Yeah. Uh and that was coming off of, you know, he was eleventh in points in twenty seventeen, thirteenth in points in twenty eighteen. Seventeenth in points last year, but that's because he didn't make the playoffs. So. Right, right. And I think that I'm I'm also just comparing to like hype levels, and I don't feel the same amount of hype around him as there was three or four years ago. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think part of that is due to Reddick being in there, and people are more Absolutely. people are realizing like, oh, he's really not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not just a a Childress thing. It's he's not that good, right? Because Reddick's contended for wins week in and week out, and. uh I know Reddick is only 11th in points, but he's had three finishes of 24th or worse, you know, essentially three major issues. His other races have been three of the four of the five have been in the top 12, including four. Sorry, I said four of the five in the top of uh, five of the six in the top 12, including four in the top seven finishing. Yeah. When, When was the last time Austin Dillon finished? Four races in the top seven uh, in a seven-race span. Maybe never. I'm going to go. I would say I'm going to go on a limb here and say never. Right. But then you know Austin will have his Martinsville race where he could have won the damn thing. Absolutely, and that'll just come out of nowhere. Just like we saw him at Richmond two years ago. Mm-hmm. Did the same thing. Had the best car. Weird. No doubt. I don't get it. Yeah. He, he's he's a tough one. Cause, and. Or Michigan last year when Keselowski rescued him. Yep. He, he had a top three car at Michigan last year before he got wrecked at the end of stage one. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard because it's so unpredictable. You're you're throwing darts, and then all of a sudden you hit that bullseye, and that's when Austin Dillon's good. And you're like, where was that? Like, how do I predict that? And you don't. That's just why you have to do things probabilistically because – you know, if you do things probabilistically, you can still say, well, there's an 8% chance Austin Dillon is just going to be amazing this race. And it'll happen. Mm-hmm. You're not going to know when, but it can still happen. Yeah. You can just hopefully try to match it to his better tracks and go from there. Absolutely. But yeah, 
Are we gonna end this? Are we gonna end this episode talking about Austin Dillon, or are we gonna end this episode talking about how fucking awesome Dega is? Yes. There we go. Dega's awesome. There we go. Play play (laughs) DFS, win money. Yes. And we got what do we got next week? Dover. Dover. I'm I'm excited about this one because we're down to one Dover race this year. And if you remember last year. Those four Hendrick cars running up front together. I, I guess we've been down to Dover, one Dover race for a couple of years now, but those four Hendrick cars were finished one, two, three, four. And it was like whoever was out front after the last pit stop was going to win because you couldn't pass there. Hope you can pass there this year for the lead. You know, I, I guess mid pack, that kind of stuff still, but hope you can pass for the lead there this year if you're faster. I'm not holding my breath. Not given what we've seen at mile or less, although Phoenix was good. Yeah, Phoenix was good. Keep forgetting about that. That's a good sign for the championship race this year, though. So it's a good sign. But yeah. All right. Wrap this thing up. Good luck to everybody in DFS betting wise this week. And hopefully we get a good Talladega race. I have no doubt that we will. So Good luck. See you guys next week. Talk to you guys next week. Later.